The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 8th, 2022. Yesterday on the Lawfare podcast, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Suzanne Maloney, Vice President for Foreign Policy Studies at Brookings, to discuss the weeks-long protests in Iran, triggered by the September 16th death of Masa Amini, a Kurdish woman who had been arrested by Iranian morality police. For today's archive episode, I decided to post an episode from 2019 that features a conversation hosted by the Brookings Institution Center for Middle East Policy. Washington Post columnist David Ignatius sat down with Maloney and the filmmaker and journalist Maziar Bahari. They discussed the 2019 protests in Iran, what the protests could mean for the country and surrounding region, and how the U.S. and international communities should respond. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, December 31st, 2019. Iran is in turmoil. Protests erupted across the country last month, sparked by the government's decision to triple the price of gasoline. The Iranian government has responded with brute force, imposing a blackout of the internet and deploying security forces to crack down on the streets. The crackdown has left hundreds dead and thousands injured or detained. On December 18th, the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution hosted a discussion on the unrest in Iran what it means for the future of the country and the region, and how the United States and the international community should respond. Washington Post columnist David Ignatius led the conversation which featured Brookings senior fellow Suzanne Maloney, as well as filmmaker and journalist Mazier Bahari, who leads IranWire, a news site which conveys original information from Iran via citizen journalists. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 491, Upheaval and repression in Iran. So I want to begin by asking each of our panelists if they would just bring us up to date. Uh, Where do things stand now? Um, December 18, more than a month after these protests began. Uh, Mazir, why don't you just give us an impression from your sources of where things are now? Well, thank you very much, David, for such a nice introduction, and thank you, everyone, for coming here. I'm glad that many people chose to come 
here but Iran rather than watching the impeachment hearings because <laughs> many Iranians were complaining uh, when the protests started that no one was paying attention to what was going on in Iran because people were uh, preoccupied with impeachment and the elections in the UK and you know what happened with Eric Solwell and you know uh, I'm not going to tell you what happened most people know that uh, so what uh, is happening right now in Iran is that people are waiting for the 40th day after the killing started, which will be the Boxing Day, 26th of December, because Iranians, Shias in general, they mourn their deaths for 40 days after uh, the person's death. So we are all waiting to see what will happen on the 26th of December. Many parents of those who were killed uh, uh, during the protests have asked uh, the public to join them mourning for their loved ones. And it will be, uh, we, have to, we just have to see what, uh, how the regime will react. The country is still in a state of shock because people knew that this regime was brutal, because, you know, killings had happened before November 16th, 17th. Many people witnessed killings right after the revolution, then in 1988, during the 80s in general. And the regime treated the uh, protests with brutality in early 2018 as well. But the level of violence, the killings, and the brutality with which that they just murdered people, shooting protesters in the hearts, shooting protesters in their heads, is just shocking to people. And as we speak, they are finding new bodies. There are reports that they are finding different bodies from different lakes, dams, uh, rivers across Iran. Many of those bodies, you know, you see, uh, we had a report yesterday about this man, a Kurdish uh, activist who had a bullet in his head and his legs and his arms were broken. The family doesn't know who killed him, why did it happen? So the country is still in a state of shock, and we are waiting to see what will happen on Boxing Day, 26th of December. And just uh, to, to follow that up, I'm curious about whether you get reports of continuing uh, protest, uh, or, or whether we're now in a kind of wall as we wait for the Arbaeen the 40th um, day response on, on, a, on a given day, a Friday, whenever, are people out protesting or are they being more careful? People are more careful now because 40 years after the revolution, now it's going to be 41 years after the revolution, people have started to respect their lives much more than before. In the beginning of the revolution and even in the 80s, martyrdom as a Shia concept was a value, not only for the people who supported the government and the revolutionaries, but also people who uh, opposed the government. Many people don't know that, but suicide bombing may have started in Iran in the 80s. Many uh, opposition uh, group mem members 
they basically kill themselves and different imams of Friday prayers and different leaders across Iran in the 1980s through suicide bombing. So martyrdom was a concept. People wanted to die for a higher cause. But that changed, especially after the Iran-Iraq war in 1988. And people started to respect life. People started to respect uh, their existence. And because of that, you didn't see that many people resorting to violence against uh, the government. Because, first of all, they, are, they knew that this government is armed and is ready to use violence. But also, they started to enjoy life much more than before. But now, as we've seen in different uh, cities, people are just desperate. There are reports that people are just dying of, you know, uh, the Revolutionary Guards uh, video unit, they released a video today uh, showing that people in the city of Mashar are saying that we are hungry. We don't have anything to eat. We're just waiting to die. And this is something that's, you know, happening in many uh, cities and towns across Iran. So uh, people are resorting to violence as well. And people, many people, they are responding to the violence perpetrated by the regime through violence. Whereas in the past, they tried to resort, they tried to resist peacefully and nonviolently. Now, I think after the November uh, protests, we have entered the new phase. People still don't know what this phase will be like, but it's a new phase. The government has become more militant and more violent, and the people will resist more violently as well. So, Suzanne, how would you uh, set the stage in terms of describing where we are right now? And then we'll, we'll come back and look at how this started uh, in mid-November. But, but what's your sense of where things are now? I think Maziar has uh, given a sort of great overview of the, the, the landscape in Iran today. Um, but I think it's also important to understand a bit of the context, which is that, you know, Iran has had a history of protests, of people willing to go to the streets, ready to go to the streets, um, often over small economic grievances or personalized economic grievances, labor strikes, teachers' unions coming out, people um, protesting uh, difficulties in the financial s situation uh, when banks close. Things like this happen all the time in Iran and have for most of the past 40 years, even during the, the toughest times of the Iran-Iraq war. There was still a kind of culture of political mobilization that existed in Iran, and it was within certain bounds. You had to be careful, uh, and you might risk actually being arrested or beaten. Um, and we have seen moments where there have been much larger protests, um, particularly over political issues, as in 2009, when more than a million people came to the streets of Tehran over a period of days. The protests went on for weeks. The unrest and the, the cries of death to the dictator and Allahu Akbar from the rooftops of buildings were heard for months. People continued to mobilize, and yet... We have never seen the degree of violence either used by protesters in a mass way or in terms of the government's response. And I think that's what's so important to understand when Maziar talks about this being a, a sort of different moment in Iranian history. Um, I think that's unequivocal to those of us who watch Iran closely, that this is something unlike what we have seen before in Iran. During the 2009 upheaval, which you're probably familiar with, 
Um, it was a dramatic moment in Iran. And yet, and there was certainly violence used against the people who came to the streets, but it was typically thugs on motorcycles who were trying to drive people off the streets, trying to disrupt what were largely peaceful protests. The videos that were coming out, even, you know, in a, in a small way while the internet was first shut down by the regime last month, and then in a much more dramatic fashion since the internet has been restored, are like nothing I can imagine. In fact, it is, it is far more similar to what we've seen play out in, in Iraq with the Shia militias shooting from rooftops, having gunmen on the streets. It's absolutely shocking, and I think that this is part of uh, what we're seeing now in Iran, is the sense of trying to make some sort of sense of both the violence that was used by protesters, the degree of anger, the frustration that's not about one person or about one faction of the Iranian political system, but about the system as a whole, and then the readiness of the security forces to shoot to kill in a way that we haven't seen in a mass basis in, in cities around the country. So let's turn to the question that's always the mystery with the social protest. Why did it happen when it did? Uh, and Mazir, just take us to that question. It's November 15. We have an increase in, in gas. Will you tell the story and then help us make sense of why that led to this extraordinary explosion? Sure. Uh, so on the night of Friday, November 15th, the government of Iran announced that it's going to increase the price of gas. 50% for the 16 gallons uh, that's allocated for uh, for cars, for most cars. There are different allocations, taxis and motorcycles. They have different allocations, but it's usually uh, 33 pence. For, it was 33 pence for uh, 16 gallons. So that 16 gallons was increased, that allocation was increased by 50%, so it became about 49 uh, cents. And then beyond that, it was increased by 300%, so three times as much, almost a dollar. And you may think that, you know, one dollar even is not much uh, in, you know, in this country, it's like, what, how much is it? It's $3 per gallon. In the, in the UK, it's about $5. So, uh, but in Iran, when you think about the average salary is about $250 a month. And many Iranians, they are making a living by uh, working as couriers and cab drivers. That's 300% increase affects their lives. Again, we still don't know how is it going to affect the prices because it's only one month after the price increase. But I think in order to understand the situation, the Revolutionary Guards uh, video unit, it's called Avant, and Avant, uh, they, uh, they did a documentary which was released, I think, yesterday, and they talked to some people from the city of Masha, where the majority, where many killings happened, and people were killed by tanks and heavy machine guns. What is interesting about this documentary, according to a friend of mine who called me about one hour ago from Iran, is that the person, the reporter that you see in this video, 
he is very close to the Quds Force, uh, Qasem Soleimani, and he's also someone who's been to Syria many times and praised Iranian involvement in Syria, as they call it, the saviors of the Haram. So according to this friend who's an astute IRGC watcher and uh, media analyst, this video is part of a plan that the RGC trying to perpetrate that, that to want to, to promote that Iran needs a savior. That many governments, especially Rouhani government, because of its inept and inefficient policies, has created such poverty, such bad economic conditions. And Iran needs a strong man in order to save it. I'm sure we've heard it in other countries before as well. And that person is no one but Qasem Soleimani, of course, who is being portrayed like a saint in RGC media or part of the RGC media, of course. But what I think uh, what they are doing is going to backfire. It's going to be counterproductive. Because not only me, but many Iranians, when this guy is talking about authorities, we don't think of authorities as Rouhani's government and Rouhani's cabinet. We are thinking about the Islamic Republic. So to many Iranians, this video is really a critique of 40 years of mismanagement, 40 years of corruption that has led to this point. And we have so many, I mean, Iranians are masters of poetry. You hear so many beautiful metaphors here that this guy says each river has a capacity. This river, Iran, just overflows and led to this flood. And people say that we can accept poverty, we can accept unemployment, but we cannot accept discrimination. And that's why many Iranians, again, they believe that what happened in November is part of this universal protest that is happening in Chile, in Iraq, in Hong Kong, by citizens of different countries for their rights as citizens. They do not want to be neglected. They want their rights as citizens of the country to be recognized. Suzanne, do you pick up any echoes uh, in your uh, reporting and, and discussions that would uh, support this fascinating idea that uh, the IRGC is, is trying to get out ahead of popular anger by saying uh, it's those authorities who are to blame? Do, do you pick up similar notes? Well, I think it, you know, this is part of a broader uh, history in Iran of the regime really effectively um, propagandizing to its own population. We spend a lot of time here in Washington thinking about Iran's export of the revolution around the region. But in fact, part and parcel of this system since 1979 has been a constant effort both to repress but also to persuade the population to try to make their case for sustaining a system that fundamentally doesn't carry the same degree of support that it does today. Most of the Iranian population is too young to remember the revolution. Most of the population, in fact, is now too young to really remember the war, the first decade of the revolution. 
And so you have this set of circumstances in which the regime really needs to constantly refresh this sense of, of, of the revolutionary values, the Islamic values, to a population who have completely different cultural and political references and priorities. Um, and so they've become quite effective at it. As Mazier said, they've, they've got a massive uh, Revolutionary Guard propaganda shop that produces blockbuster movies, as well as the kind of art movies that you sometimes see come out uh, of Iran and make it onto the to the uh, festival circuit. But they, I think, ultimately, the question is, can they actually overcome this sense of, of deep alienation, which has been building, particularly among those Iranians? Um, it's a very well-educated population. The, the post-revolutionary system invested in a lot of the infrastructure for the baby boom that has now come of age. But these people just don't have jobs, and they don't see a future set of opportunities for them. That, that uh, passionate man who, I'm a university graduate. And, I, and I'm unemployed. So uh, let me turn to the question of the American, the Trump administration's role in creating the economic conditions that exploded on, on November 15. And, and Mazir, let me ask, ask you to, to, to start. The Trump administration since 2018 has had its campaign of maximum pressure, and it's it's been pretty devastating in terms of anything you can measure, certainly uh, Iranian oil exports and revenues. Sometimes listening to Trump administration officials talk about these events, you hear the kind of undertone, this is just what we thought would happen, this is just what we wanted to happen, this is a corrupt regime, and the people facing hardship are... What about that? Is this this a made-in-USA economic crisis? Uh, or is it something much, much deeper? No, I don't think it's a made-in-the-USA uh, crisis. To start with, I don't think that Iran was enjoying such a good economic situation before the maximum pressure campaign started. And also, the maximum pressure campaign is effective because of the corruption in the system, because of the IRGC's presence in different sectors of the Iranian economy, industry, culture, everything. When you think of RGC and what it, why it was created in the beginning of the revolution, it came from the idea that Iran needed a revolutionary army in order to preserve the system, in order to fight, uh, to be loyal to the revolution. And IRGC, by the way, does not have the, the word Iran in its name. It's Islamic Revolutions Revolutionary Guards Corps. So there is no, nothing about Iran in the name. But eventually, IRGC became this hegemon that it has Australia. financial institutions, you have universities, you have different industries. So uh, IRGC is really uh, the biggest industrial industrial institution in Iran. It has many banks, it owns many factories, it owns many universities and hospitals. So when the U.S. designated IRGC a foreign terrorist organization, that meant that millions of ordinary Iranians were affected by that designation. 
So imagine you're working in a bank as an accountant. You're working in a university as a teacher or a janitor. IRGC takes over that uh, university or buys the majority share in that institution. All of a sudden, you become a part of the IRGC and you become a terrorist. And because of that, millions of Iranians are affected by it in terms of the import of uh, medicine in Iran. One of the main uh, financial institutions in Iran that provides uh, letters of credit to um, importers of medicine, Parsian Bank is uh, majority owned by the IRGC, not directly by IRGC, by different institutions within IRGC. So Parsian Bank was affected by that designation, and because of that, it cannot import any medicine. Uh, it not it cannot uh, give letters of credit for import of medicine. So because of this corruption within the system, because of this omnipresence of IRGC and Bonyads, these foundations that Susan has uh, written uh, a lot about in the Iranian economy, in the Iranian system, this maximum pressure campaign has become really effective. It's not, uh, I mean, it's not the exact analogy, but I saw you this morning talking about narcos, and I think when you think about these drug lords in different countries, Mexico and Colombia, they own charities, they own hospitals. And sometimes, you know, the schools run by these drug lords or the hospitals run by drug lords in Colombia or Mexico, they're much better run than the, uh, the government's uh, hospitals and schools. So if that drug lord is arrested or subjected to sanction, that's going to affect that hospital and that university. You're, you're Similar thing is happening to that. Are not blaming the United States as the architect of their misery, but, but are blaming the regime, which is precisely what the administration was hoping. It's because independent journalists cannot work in Iran, because we cannot do independent service in Iran. I'm not sure how many people blame the U.S., how many people blame the Iranian government. But I don't think that this administration, the U.S. administration, has done a very good job in terms of talking about the sanctions. Because, for example, medicine and humanitarian goods are exempted from the sanctions. But there are two issues. One is that when you have these sanctions, and the sanctions are, uh, news of sanctions are repeated in the media, this makes these financial institutions, I don't know, HSBC, Barclays, and uh, different uh, banks more conservative. So they don't give letters of credit or they don't help Iranian uh, financial institutions within Iran to import uh, humanitarian goods or medicine. And the, and the American government, people in the Treasury, don't go to these financial institutions and explain, don't explain the situation that, no, this is exempted. For, the, for Barclays or HSBC, the most expedient thing to do is just to impose sanctions on everything. Even us, because we, are, uh, we have a website called IranWire, we are harassed by the banks. Even though we have no one working in Iran, even though we are very critical of the Iranian government, our bank... Barclays in London and here, PNC, 
they keep on asking us about our transaction. Why? Because we have Iran in Iran wire. Even Justice for Iran, which is a human rights organization fighting against the Iranian government, is harassed because it has Iran in its name. But Iranian government is also using these sanctions in order to cover its inefficiencies and mismanagement and blame the U.S., uh, for all the miseries and problems. Su- Suzanne, how would, how would you uh, assess the American Trump administration maximum uh, pressure campaign in terms of its desired intention to target the IRGC in particular, but regime elements without alienating the, the population as a whole? How would you assess uh, the, the effectiveness of that? I think overall, the U.S. strategy has been very effective at compounding the structural economic problems that have existed in Iran really since the earliest days of the revolution, that no government has managed to, uh, to really make progress on addressing in a, in a consistent and durable fashion since over the course of the past 40 years. Um, so as Maziar said, these sanctions have been effective in part because of the dysfunction within the Iranian economy. They've been more effective in creating that economic pain than many here in Washington, particularly those of us who supported the nuclear diplomacy presumed. Um, I think there was a lot of uncertainty, even here in this town, even by those who supported the the administration strategy, about how a go-it-alone approach would work, because the last time we saw this level of economic pressure applied to Iran, it was, in fact, with the consensus and support and additional mechanisms applied by the European Union, a number of governments, including the UK and Japan and and elsewhere around the world. And this time it was just the Trump administration, and and these measures were imposed um, really over the objections of all of our partners and allies. And so there was some uncertainty about how companies and and firms and individuals would uh, abide by them or not. And, And we saw very quickly that there was a rush to the exits, in part, Again, because of the, the unappealing environment for, for foreign trade and business that Iran presents. You don't know who you're dealing with. There's a lot of regulatory hassles. And there's a lot of concern about running afoul of even, even during the period where the sanctions were lifted after the nuclear deal or, or suspended. There was a lot of concern about running afoul because you just didn't know precisely who might own the firm that you were dealing with. And so, in terms of imposing economic pain, the sanctions have been wildly effective. To the extent that they have driven a strategy, I think that's where we can raise some questions. Um, there is at least some readiness on both sides to engage diplomatically, but because the United States has articulated such a, a broad-based set of objectives for this uh, maximum pressure strategy, and because it's unclear what, in fact, uh, the Iranians are prepared to give, what we have now done is essentially incentivize the Iranians to begin uh, escalating around the region, escalating in terms of their own noncompliance with the nuclear deal. And uh, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about how that ends, because for the Iranians, there's a lot of urgency to try to get out from under this pressure. Um, for a variety of reasons, but largely just for the the persistence and existence of of the regime. At a certain point, 
this level of economic hardship among the population, this readiness to go to the streets and, and protest in a, in, a, in a really violent way, um, is going to be something that's going to be hard to sustain. Uh, and so I think the Iranian leadership would like to find some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's not clear how to get that from the Trump administration. And so what they've been doing is to try to galvanize diplomatic urgency around the world by striking out in the region, by beginning to step away from the nuclear deal. Um, and I think we are now in a process where the Iranians are, are really dictating the timetable on this, which is a bit unfortunate. Let's, let's spend just a, a little bit more time on that and ro uh, roll the videotape back to the, to the spring, late April, early May. My sources for my the reporting in my column described uh, a change of strategy on the part of the Iranian leadership who had believed that they could ride out the maximum pressure campaign from the Trump administration, perhaps because Trump would be defeated in November 2020, perhaps because European governments would find uh, some escape hatch. They thought that we can ride this out. And in early May, maybe a different judgment was reached. And then we saw the Iranians begin to provoke, trying to create pain for Gulf countries, uh, trying to make it difficult for them to export oil, a uh, series of, of tanker incidents. Uh, and then the, the most serious was the coordinated Iranian attack on the Saudi refinery at Abqaiq, uh, for which the Saudis had no... Uh, defense, and interestingly, for which we and the Saudis had no military uh, retaliation. So the question I'd, I'd ask each of you is, in terms of that dimension of the crisis, Iran seeking to raise the pain level for the West, where are we, and what would your judgment be about whether they're prepared to escalate further, uh, given that there hasn't been any military retaliation that we know of yet? Uh, well, Iran knows that the U.S. is playing its uh, own backyard, and it's Iran's backyard, so it, they feel that they have the upper hand, and they are following the U U.S. politics. They know that uh, Trump was very critical of the past uh, wars in the Middle East, that he was very critical of the invasion of Iraq. So they know that, uh, or they thought that, uh, they've been thinking that uh, the U.S. is not going to retaliate uh, as much as before uh, against Iran's military uh, movements in the region. And also Iran has been strengthening its uh, military status in the region, in Afghanistan, of course, after the fall of the Taliban, in Iraq, after the fall of Saddam Hussein, in Syria, they created Hezbollah in the early 80s, which they regard as part of the Revolutionary Guards, and they have uh, the new uh, allies in the Houthis, which this alliance started maybe about 10 years ago or so. So, uh, and... With the rise of ISIS, they know that the U.S. is vulnerable in the region and that the U.S. needs a certain level of cooperation from Iran 
in order to contain ISIS. So they've been using that. They've been uh, using that. They are strengthening uh, their uh, position in Iraq with uh, this on and off alliance with Muqtad al-Sadr and creation of Hashd al-Shabi. And uh, in Syria, they are trying to expand their uh, presence. And they are also waiting, and they have been waiting since the uh, since maybe around the time 2003, when uh, around the time of the invasion of Iraq, for an imminent U.S. attack. When I was in Iran after the uh, invasion of Iraq, I remember my friends at Iranian uh, state television, radio and television. They were telling me that different uh, parts of the Iranian state television they are uh, in each 31 at uh, in each province of Iran they were creating their own independent station in case the uh, central uh, headquarters in Tehran falls they can carry out uh, the propaganda in different uh, provinces so right now all 31 uh, provinces of Iran, they have their own uh, state television. And they also, in each of those states, they have their uh, IRGC has its own uh, branches of economic activities, power uh, alleviation activities, in order to uh, survive an American attack. Uh, so they are ready both inside Iran and outside of Iran for an attack. I think the best policy policy for the American government and its allies, but especially for the American government, is to have zero tolerance for Iranian military attacks outside of Iran. Because if Iranian military intervention in the region is tolerated, then it will embolden the regime inside Iran. And that, in turn, will lead to more human rights abuses, more uh, brutality by the regime. The regime should know that it has to pay a price. If it attacks a tanker in the, in the Persian, Persian Gulf, it is going to pay a price. If it kills an American soldier or attacks uh, American allies in uh, Iraq, it is going to pay a pay price. So... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Suzanne, let me ask you to give us your judgment about the question of whether additional Iranian provocations or escalation uh, are, are likely in this continuing stalemate where the regime is under pressure, uh, looking for some way to, to uh, increase pain for, for the other side. I, I note um, that there have been, uh, I'm quoting Al Jazeera here, since October 28, 10 rocket attacks uh, in Iraq uh, that are near U.S. troops or facilities, and that Secretary of Defense Esper said on Monday uh, after one of these attacks that he was concerned about the optics of strikes from presumably Iranian proxies that were near U.S. personnel or material. It sounded like not quite a red line, but certainly a warning. What, what's your judgment about, about what the Iranians do next in terms of their tactics? Well, I think we've seen this sort of um, careful, prudent, precise escalation, as you said, that really began in May. It was a, quite a shift from the year or so that the Iranians sat tight to wait and see whether the sanctions would be effective or whether or not the Trump administration might go off and do something else. But since May, there has been, uh, you know, these attacks in the Gulf. There have been attacks on facilities that were set up as contingency measures in, by the various states of the Gulf to ensure they could export their oil, even if the Iranians tried to close the Strait of Hormuz. There have been uh, the attack, of course, on Abqaiq. All of this has been done in a way by the Iranians that I think is quite interesting. There have been no civilian casualties, mm-hmm. been no significant environmental damage, there has been no, uh, no, no damage to the economic facilities. It hasn't been relatively easily repairable. And that even includes Upcake, which clearly they could have raised the entire compound, which would have knocked out significant volumes of oil from global markets for a long time. But what they chose to do was to pinprick attack a number of facilities in a way that the, the, the Saudis could repair but could also understand that the Iranians had the ability to carry out a highly sophisticated attack. This has all succeeded, I think, from the Iranian perspective. They've gotten, you know, a variety of new initiatives on the table from the Japanese, from the French. There are interlockers working uh, across the board, uh, the, the number of Gulf states, the Swiss, um, everyone trying to inject some uh, possibility of, of a resolution. The Trump administration has, in fact, um, gone public, the president on a number of occasions saying he'd love to sit across the table. Um, we know, of course, of this effort during the United Nations General Assembly to, in fact, broker a meeting um, with President Rouhani, which fell short. Um, but I think it's quite clear from the Iranian side that what they've been able to do is to produce more diplomacy, to create some new opportunities, to begin to apparently persuade some of the, their adversaries in the Gulf, the Emiratis, and the Saudis in particular, to begin to back off a little bit of their hostility. Um, that's all gravy. That's all upside. Um, but what they haven't done is actually get access to their cash. And that's what they need. 
Um, and so what I see is, as Mazier said, this is a regime that's now emboldened, but also unsatisfied. Um, and, and from that calculation, I think that and the fact that there has been no significant retaliation on the part of the Trump administration and that President Trump has been quite clear about his aversion to doing so. He actually live tweeted his decision to pull back a, a retaliatory strike back in July. So, you know, from my perspective, the, all of this leads to the presumption that we will see more attacks from Iran. They may be more of the same attacks on facilities and installations uh, that are of economic importance, both to the Gulf states as well as to the broader global economy. But they may look to strike elsewhere um, simply because they've gotten what they need out of out of the Gulf and that they may now be looking to drive home the message that this isn't all they can do. They have capabilities across the region. As Maziar suggested, there, as you well know, um, they have uh, allies and proxies across the region. Um, and, and I think we have to be prepared for the next strike because it will be coming. Just, Suzanne, to follow up with you on this, because you're uh, really one of the world's uh, experts on this, on this diplomacy. Is there any formula that you can imagine being viable that through the Europeans, presumably, would satisfy Iran's desire to have cash, have some liquidity, uh, and in that sense, economic relief that the Trump administration could describe as holding fast or success. You know, there's no way that in an election year, Donald Trump is either A, going to go to war, in my judgment, or B, appear to be conceding to Iranian demands. So is there something that you can see or hear whispers about that might uh, satisfy those conditions? I don't think we've quite found the right formula, but I think you know something that looked like uh, the interim nuclear deal, the joint plan of action, which isn't permanent, which doesn't provide the Iranians with full-fledged access to all of their cash, but at least provides some opening for negotiations, could be tolerable from at least some within the administration certainly would be appealing from the Iranian point of view. The difficulty is that the most ardent advocate of diplomacy in Washington, or at least within this administration, is the president himself. And the president himself doesn't care about the details. What he cares about is the opportunity to grandstand at a photo op. And I think that's the one thing we can almost ensure that the Iranians won't give. Because really, you know, we have now waited 40 years. It's been 40 years since uh, an Iranian at a leadership level, I mean, above foreign minister level, has met with an American counterpart. That meeting was with the then provisional prime minister, Mehdi Bazargan, uh, who met with the national security advisors, Big Brzezinski, in Algiers in October of 1979. And we all know what happened a couple of weeks later. It was part of the precipitant for the seizure of the U.S. Embassy. That memory lives long. The aversion to kind of legitimizing, just as we talk here in Washington about not wanting to legitimize the regime, they have their own sort of um, need to avoid that kind of direct face-to-face -face contact. And it would be, I think, a, a historic concession on the part of the Iranians, and they would be looking for a historic return for making such a concession. And I think president has no incentive to do that in an election year. He, he can go to his base and say that he's done what he promised to do, which was walk away from the deal, impose pressure on Iran. It's had absolutely no blowback on the U.S. economy. And so, you know, he, he doesn't really need to do anything 
until and unless there's the threat of a war. And I think that's, again, why we're likely to see the Iranians push the envelope, because they recognize that's the one thing that this administration is sensitive to. And it's not going to be acceptable to Khamenei either, because Khamenei is 80 now, and he's thinking about, like any other aging leader, he's thinking about his legacy. As you remember, Francois Mitterrand in France, he built those pyramids outside of Louvre, and, you know, he invested in TGV, and, you know, and Khamenei is also thinking about his legacy, and his legacy doesn't, he doesn't want his legacy to be taking picture with Trump. So he is thinking about... He also doesn't want it to, to be a country in flames. Um, well, uh, I think if Khamenei had a choice between taking... Unfortunately, if he had a choice between taking a picture with uh, Trump or a country in flames, he would choose a country in flames. Because for him, the optics is much more important than, you know, than the reality. And unfortunately, this... Uh, government has proven time and again that it does not respect the lives of its citizens. While Khamenei is, like any other leader again, does not want to kill his citizens, he doesn't want the citizen to be miserable, you know, but when push comes to shove and it's a choice between his survival or people living miserably are getting killed. Of course, he chooses people living miserably. So that, that sets up my last uh, uh, question before we, we turn to the audience. Uh, and that is, it's often uh, said by uh, Iran uh, observers that in the end, uh, the fundamental breakthrough that we're talking about that would normalize this relationship, would provide a reliable uh, check against Iran's nuclear program, really isn't conceivable while Khamenei is alive. So people then argue that the center of wise uh, policy for the United States should be to, to prepare for the post-Khomeini uh, Khamenei transition. And let me just ask each of you to think a little bit about that out loud with us. What what would sensible policies be? What are going to what are the pressure points and competing political dynamics going to be in Iran as people move towards this this uh, moment of of, of change? Mazier, uh, do you mean for the American administration? Yes. In other words, just thinking now about uh, well, first, what do you see happening in Iran as we move toward that point? And then, given that, what's good policy for the U.S.? It is very difficult to know what is going to happen in Iran because many regime supporters and many regime apologists, they are talking about Syrianization of Iran, meaning that if this regime falls, Iran will become a failed state like Syria. But at the same time, what we see in Iran is that this uh, government, especially that's what happened during the protest, that this uh, government as a whole, I'm trying not to use the word regime because it's a very simple way of putting everything uh, together and create and, and you know saying that this uh, the Iranian government establishment is a monolith. It is not a monolith. There are many 
different groups within the regime, but they call themselves regime, Nizam. So it is a regime. So this regime as a whole, uh, they are, they, whether they are reformists, whether they are conservatives, whether they are pragmatists, what we've seen during the, uh, November 2019 protests is that the regime, different parts of the regime come together and they're trying to protect the regime as a whole. So the IRGC kills a certain group of people in different uh, parts of Iran. The Ministry of Intelligence, which is run by President Rouhani, who is supposedly a pragmatist, is arresting a number of activists, students, and putting pressure on different political groups. And the reformists are cheering for them, and except for a few of them, they are quite silent about uh, what is happening in Iran. So with that scenario, it is very difficult to know what will happen if uh, Khamenei dies tomorrow, uh, next year, whenever. For many people within the IRGC, Khamenei is the last supreme leader. Whereas Khamenei, in the beginning of his reign, after he became the supreme leader in 1989, he chose uh, to ally himself with the intelligence officers and Ministry of Intelligence and the Revolutionary Guards as his allies. Right now, he sees his survival in being an ally of them. So they are really running the show. Khamenei is somehow... Uh, listening to them as much as they are listening to him. So after his demise, maybe there will be a, maybe they're a revolutionary guards. They try to, uh, overtake the government and create a military, uh, regime. And we'll see that most probably the next, uh, speaker of the Iranian parliament will be a former, uh, revolutionary guards commander, Ghalibov, who was the, uh, mayor of Tehran. So uh, that is one scenario. But of course, in many cases, this regime falls <laughs> and there will be a replacement. And, you know, an opposition group can replace them. Who that opposition group can be, again, we don't know. Many people uh, in Iran, they are supporting Reza Pahlavi, the son of the Shah. We, again, don't know how many people support him. But from the videos that we are receiving from Iran, from the slogans that people are chanting in Iran, we see that he has a sizable support in the country. So whether there is a room for him in the future of Iran, again, it's an unknown. It's one of those multi-billion dollar questions that you're asking. Suzanne, any, any thoughts about uh, post-Khamenei Iran? Well, I think we're already seeing uh, an intense jockeying around the succession process and the parliamentary elections that will take place in February, the presidential elections that will take place next year are all part of this jockeying for influence. I don't think it's so much about who gets the nod as his as the successor. Right now, it appears strongly, and of course, this is Iran. Predictions have a very almost infinitesimally short half-life. Um, but the, the, the most likely candidate is Ibrahim Raisi, who ran against Rouhani in the last presidential election, who's now head of the judiciary in Iran. He seems to be being set up in a very direct and public way to be the, the point person, uh, the, the next supreme leader. But of course, 
as important as the Supreme Leader is, everyone who surrounds him, the making of the Supreme Leader, the structure of his office, his control of the system is equally important. Um, there were massive changes that went into <coughs> the preparation and then the aftermath of Khamenei's succession, the only time this has ever been done in, in, in 1989. And I expect that there's going to be, a, there already is quite a bit of, of kind of maneuvering around who would be in the position to influence the shape of the post-Khamenei order. Um, and I think that it's no longer just about the who. Um, I actually wrote this months ago, back in February. It's very much about the what. You know, how does this happen? What does it look like? The Islamic Republic post-1989 in, in structural ways is quite different than, than the way that the, the system was run by Khomeini, the original supreme leader. And I think we have to assume there will, there will be significant differences that, that come over time. And more importantly, this is just a political moment of opportunity for, for entrepreneurs within the system, for people on the street, for whomever it is that has been helping to galvanize uh, what's happening in terms of popular frustration. Um, and this is a population that is literate, connected, you know, twice as many SIM cards as, as citizens in, in Iran the last time I, I looked at the statistics. People are engaged and, and knowledgeable, and they've had a lot of experience with political competition within very narrow bounds, and they're interested in expanding those bounds. I think the United States will have almost no direct or, or constructive role to play. Um, we didn't in, in 1979, uh, even at a time where we had hundreds of thousands of Americans in Iran and, and many Iranians here at the time, um, our ability to influence the shape of the order uh, post-Khamenei is fairly minimal. The one thing that we can and should do at every point in time is simply to remove this uh, visa ban that was imposed by the Trump administration, which has no possible reasonable argument in favor of it and hurts Iranian human rights activists more than anyone else. Uh, and one thing that uh, we have to remember about the Iranian government is that it's been losing its legitimacy as uh, its legitimacy as a theocracy has been eroding for the past decade or so. Khamenei was not a high-ranking uh, ayatollah. He was not even an ayatollah when he became the supreme leader. So, but still, he had some revolutionary backgrounds. He had some relationship with the ayatollahs and grand ayatollahs' income. So he has had some legitimacy, and he's being uh, trying to create some alliance within the houses, as they call the different grand ayatollahs. His successor, if it's Raisi, has no connection whatsoever with those grand ayatollahs. So uh, the regime has been transforming from a theocracy into a quasi-military dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And when Khamenei is going, when Khamenei dies, that process, I think, is going to, going to be expedited. And the regime becomes more of a military regime rather than a theocracy. So let's uh, go to the audience. Let me uh, ask you, please, to identify yourselves. Uh, there's a microphone that will come to you. Keep your questions short, please. Make sure there really are questions. Uh, yes, a gentleman in third row. Thank you, Piotr from uh, Sice and Amnesty. Um, yeah, so I was at a talk in May at the Atlantic Council, and um, uh, it was just after the Gulf um, escalation. And um, I spoke to, I asked a question to General James Cartwright about the idea of U.S. ground strategy towards Iran particularly, but the Middle East. Um, 
And, well, I personally don't think a zero-tolerance policy is perhaps the best idea. The UK did it when they seized the tanker in Gibraltar, and that didn't really amount to much. And uh, General Cartwright emphasised the idea that we need to actually not use a strategy of isolation and scrutiny, but more of a reintegration of Iran over a longer term. And my question is, how much do you agree with that? But equally, how much of that might come around if we have a change of administration in the United States? Thank you. Well, I think what happened in Gibraltar was somehow maybe half-baked. And as our friend John Limbert, who was a hostage in Iran, says, uh, Iran does not respond to pressure, but it responds to a lot of pressure. Uh, I believe that there should be no tolerance of Iranian attack and Iranian interference in other countries in the region. And I believe that uh, I heard about what you said yesterday in the British media. Uh, I think that's uh, that's a different uh, European approach to that's a different European approach to. Uh, Iran's military presence than the American one. But the Europeans uh, really do not matter as much in the uh, this equilibrium. It's, I think it's Iran versus the U.S. And it is, it's either in, in that region, you either have to be in Team America or you have to be in Team Iran. There is no Team France or Team UK. There is Team America and there is Team Iran. And I think for Americans, they have to really defend Team America because it, it, otherwise it is going to embolden the regime within Iran. And that is the mentality that they have. And they are they're trying to push it. And, you know, I personally support the JCPOA at that time because it was a good deal to contain Iran's nuclear program. But I always told people that it's not a panacea, that Iran is not going to transform into a democracy. Iran is not going to prosper because of this. And, you know, the people who prospered from uh, JCPOA money was really uh, people within the regime, the IRGC, the Bonyads, and people within the regime. And the people in general, ordinary Iranians, did not benefit uh, from that. Okay, so the gentleman first story, yes. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. So I Iran increases the U-235 enrichment by almost a point, and not the smallest sanction snapped back. It's very easy for me to imagine an increase to 5.5% enrichment to slice the salami even further with yet another absence of snapback sanctions. So I want to ask, what is the red line on the European sanctions? Or can they continue to slice the salami forever? And um, or was the snapback concept just baloney from the outset? I, I don't think the snapback concept was was baloney from the outset. I, I think it was meaningful as long as the United States was part of the deal. But the difficulty that the Europeans, the difficult predicament that the Europeans have been in since May of 2018, is that they're trying to uh, maintain some degree of compliance and some degree of viability for the JCPOA um, and and maintain the relationships with both countries. And it's, I think, increasingly tenuous 
their ability to do so. Um, they don't want to snap back. They're prepared to do it under certain circumstances. I don't think you'll ever get a sort of public red line from them because they know if they articulate it, the Iranians will immediately exceed it. But they are still, I think, holding on to this, what I think is increasingly chimerical notion that the JCPOA can, we can all revert to status quo ante. I don't think that's true any longer. And it, this is not because I wish that were the case. I wish it were not the case. I wish, in fact, that we at least had that intact as a mechanism for containing Iran's nuclear activities so that we could address all the other issues. But unfortunately, I think even if we see a Democrat elected here in Washington, one of the many who has pledged uh, to revert to the JCPOA come January 2021, we won't have that happen because we will have all these other issues of Iran's activities around the region and because the Iranians will have begun to slice so far uh, at their own obligation, away from their own obligations, that the deal itself will be meaningless. We will have to start a new negotiation with the Iranians at that time to get to a bigger, better deal, one that perhaps addresses some of the deficiencies of the JCPOA, one that at least has a nod to some of the other issues, the regional concerns, which were part of the fuel for the fire against the JCPOA in this country. Um, I think we have a very... Uh, large and, and difficult diplomatic burden to, to, to bear, even if there is a president who is willing to undertake it. And we've done almost none of the prep work for that whatsoever. It's, it, it is a, a shocking dereliction on the part of the United States, both people in and out of government, but also on the part of the Europeans, because they have invested so much in this nuclear agreement and they can't begin to walk away from the idea, they can't begin to conceptualize the sense that that investment is essentially a sunk cost and they're going to have to find a new vehicle for addressing the concerns about Iran. Fascinating. Uh, the gentleman in the fourth row and then Sir back there in the second to last row. Thank you. Um, George Abed, the Institute of International Finance. Uh, I have a question on the militias that have been set up by Iran in neighboring countries, um, and which are, by the way, at the, at the center of concern for the U.S. administration and potentially for the stability of the region as a whole. Um, it turns out that not only has the so-called revolutionary regime in Iran oppressed its own citizens, but also in the recent uprising in Lebanon and in Iraq, the militia that have been set up by Iran, sided with the corrupt regimes against actually many of the, their own people, their own Shiites who are demonstrating. And this was uh, reflected in the chants against Iran in Iraq itself and the burning of the consulate in Najaf, I believe. Uh, now, my question is, what would be the reaction of Qasem Soleimani and the IGRC to this kind of demise of their so-called image as a revolutionary force to becoming an oppressive force? Will they double down on their investment in Hezbollah and the Shiites, Hajj uh, uh, al-Shabi in Iraq and in Syria, or will they begin to withdraw and focus on Iran itself? Well, I think uh, we have to differentiate between different militias, different groups that have been set up by Iran. Hezbollah is different from Hashd al-Shabi. 
Ashtal uh, Shabi is different from Iran's alliance with the Badr Brigade or with Muqtad al-Sadr. So these are all very different concepts. They, they have different organizations. With Hezbollah, particularly Iran, I think, emulated what the Israelis have been doing for many years since the, you know, when Ben Gurion was talking about the periphery uh, countries that we have to have alliances with the uh, periphery uh, countries that are next to our enemies, you know, hence uh, friendship with Iran, Ethiopia, etc. Iran has been trying to push the war away from its borders and created Hezbollah on the border of Israel. And Hezbollah it's not, I mean, it's a new organization, but the members of Hezbollah and the leadership of Hezbollah, they've had decades of relationship with people, with Ayatollahs in Iran, with different uh, authorities in Iran. So with Hezbollah, it's very difficult to see that Iran changes its position and it's going to support Hezbollah. Hezbollah is doing very similar things to people within Hezbollah territories uh, that the Iranian government is doing in Iran. We sent a reporter to uh, Beirut recently, and I know that uh, David, you've been to Beirut recently, and our reporter was uh, saying that People in Hezbollah territories, they do not have access to media uh, outside of Hezbollah. Hezbollah is jamming transmission of television channels from other channels. Hezbollah is blocking uh, different uh, uh, sites within those areas. So one of one part of the uh, civil rights activists in Beirut is to get... Uh, the right information to people within those Hezbollah territories. In terms of Hashd al-Shabi and in terms of uh, what is happening in Iraq is that they've been supporting a very corrupt, unaccountable government from the beginning. And as this gentleman said in the uh, video that, you know, when the river has a capacity and the river can overflow, and what we saw in Najaf and what we saw in Karbala and other and in Nasiriya was that flood that was caused by supporting a very uh, small clique of Iranian allies since 2003, 2004. And I don't know whether the U.S. allies, uh, Ayat Alawi and others are... Uh, Ahmad Chalabi would be much cleaner and more accountable than the people who are in power in Iran, in Iraq right now. But these uh, people, they have proven to be as corrupt as they can get. And because of that, I think uh, people are manifesting our uh, part of their anger, at least, uh, you know, projecting part of their anger against Iran. In Iran, Iran does not have, uh, except for the Badr Brigade and part of the Badr Brigade, does not have a real allegiance to one group or another. And as you can see with Muqtada al-Sadr, Muqtada al-Sadr sometimes comes to Iran and sits right next to Khamenei. Sometimes he uh, insults Iran when he goes back to Iraq. He's very critical of the Iranian regime. And Muqtada al-Sadr's family traditionally have been very much against Iran's main ally, uh, the Hakim uh, family in Iraq.
So that is uh, different. Sorry, my answers are just adding more <laughs> complexity. Oh, they're 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 <laughs> great. The, confusion uh, to the situation. It's not a. Unfortunately, it's not a very, you know, it's like, a, you know, explaining soap operas to people that, you know, who is sleeping with who, who is married to who, who is the, you know, who is the, you know, son of an incest or whatever. It's, it is like that in Iran. Yeah. The nicest thing that was ever said about Middle East analysis. Um, so uh, the gentleman in the next to the last row. Uh, Stanley Kober, following up on that, the Israeli defense minister has just said, quote, Syria is becoming Iran's Vietnam. We will increase the pressure. In 1967, Israel struck first, worked really well. If that were to happen again, what would be the consequences? How do you think that would play out? Uh, Suzanne? The Israelis have been striking Iranian positions in Syria for several years uh, with, I think, considerable effect. We've seen possible Israeli strikes in other countries as well. Um, so I, I, I think what we see is a readiness and a willingness on the part of the Israelis to continue to maintain deterrence with Iran with respect to the homeland. And that message has been received, but the Iranians are also quite creative. Uh, Qasem Soleimani is quite creative and determined to move technology, not just armaments, not just militias, not just money, but actually create indigenous opportunities and installations for production of missiles um, across the region. And that's going to be, I think, a, a long-term challenge that the Israelis are, are, are going to have to continue to deal with. Just would add uh, one comment of my own, if, if, if I might. I'm struck by the tripartite Israeli objective in their continuing actions in Syria. One, obviously, to check Iran, to attack Iranian facilities, to hit any attempt to provide weaponry that would upgrade uh, Hezbollah's cap- capabilities. Uh, secondly, they're clearly trying to send a message to Moscow. The, the intensity, the breadth of Israeli diplomacy with Russia is something I think people don't understand, but it's, it's a really important factor. And then third, obviously, they're trying to send a message to Bashar al-Assad. If you allow Iran to continue with the freedom of maneuver that it now has, you're going to pay the price because we're going to keep attacking. So I think that those are three, uh, three goals. Um, I saw yes, yes, sir, and then you, sir. So both of you mentioned that, oh, sorry, Jad Zaytouni, CSIS. Both of you mentioned that Iran now is in a new phase where violence has become much increased. Do you see that there's any chance that Iran might become Syria or anything similar to that if the violence spirals? Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, that is the fear that uh, the government, the regime, tries to propagate that it's... uh, if the regime falls, Iran can become a failed state like Syria. Many supporters of the regime on social media and uh, inside Iran, they are saying that the people who are talking about regime change in Iran or the downfall of this regime, they are they want a similar scenario as Syria, as Libya, and Iraq for and Iraq for Iran. But at the same time, we see that the Iranian government itself 
is doing very similar thing that the Syrian regime has been doing since 2011 and similar things that the Iranians helped the Assad regime do in Syria since 2011, 2012. And unfortunately, uh, many people in Iran, after seeing all these killings and shootings, they think that Iranians, they have rehearsed really well in Syria, and now they are doing similar things in Iran. So uh, Syrianization of Iran is a fear that both the regime tries to propagate but at the same time, as they have proven, when Bush comes to shop, they may want to go the way of Syria instead of listening to people and instead of allowing uh, the reform of the system. And let's take a, a last question for this gentleman here, please. Uh, Phil Carrada, retired from State Department. Uh, two questions. One, if uh, the U.S. and Israel struck uh, Iran militarily, what would be the response, the popular response? Would uh, the people rise up and rally to the government, or would they use this as an opportunity to topple it? Uh, second question, uh, does uh, China's uh, westward expansion into Central and Western Asia offer any prospect for economic relief for Iran? Two good questions. Mazur, do you want to tackle the Both first? In terms and, of and the first, yeah, yeah, the first question, uh, Iranians have proven uh, throughout their history that when it comes to the uh, their own despots and their own authoritarian ruler and a foreign invader, they would side with the despots. So that is something that everyone has to bear in mind. But again, uh, it depends on kind of attack. It depends on the casualties in the attack. It depends on where uh, they're going to hit, what kind of... A war has been going on. I mean, a, a hidden war has been going on between Iran and the U.S. and Israel. You know, when you hear about Stuxnet and about uh, different uh, attacks against Iran uh, cyber uh, infrastructure... So it depends on the attack. But if you're talking about the classic military attack, I think people would side with the regime because people do not want a foreign invader in their country. That's simple as that. Suzanne. Real quickly, I think that's a, a highly unlikely scenario. The, the, the shadow wars that Maziar mentioned are, are ongoing and, and, in fact, quite likely. But a, a conventional assault uh, invasion of any kind or air campaign against Iran, I think, is... Highly, highly unlikely. Um, we spend a lot, too much time, I think, here in Washington talking about it as a, as a, either a possibility or a threat. In terms of China, China's a player, but um, the Iranians have seen in very explicit ways that the Chinese won't jeopardize their, their priorities and interests with Washington in order to gain any access or ground or diplomatic leverage with Iran. So um, it's, a, it's certainly a relationship that has mattered since the 80s and has grown significantly, um, but it is not uh, going to be the salvation of this system under American economic pressure. Also, we are talking about Washington bubble often, you know. <laughs> Iranians, they lived in their own bubble as well. A few days ago, Iranians, uh, Vice President John Giri said that we were really surprised that uh, India joined the sanctions and stopped buying uh, 
oil from us. We thought that India is independent. They just don't have any concept of geopolitics. They do not understand what's going on uh, beyond their own bubble, similar to what's happening here, maybe. So, uh, great discussion. Thank you very much, panelists. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Brookings for hosting the panel, and to Suzanne Maloney, David Ignatius, and Mazier Bahari. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, socks, and much more. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big